0: My next guest is Eric Shiner, who has recently joined Pioneer Works after serving as artistic director for White Cube. He developed client relations with art collectors, oversaw global business activities, and acted as the public face of the gallery for media and events. He held the role of Senior Vice President of Contemporary Art at Sotheby's in New York, where he managed private sales, developed strategies for the Contemporary Art Department, and developed client relationships with top-tier collectors. Before his tenure at Sotheby's, Eric Shiner served as the director of the Andy Warhol Museum generating more than $15 million in philanthropic giving and promoting Warhol's art internationally through lectures and public outreach. Eric's additional leadership roles include the Milton Fine Curator of Art at the Andy Warhol Museum, Project Manager at the Alliance for the Arts in New York, and Director at the Hudson Project. In addition to his extensive leadership experience, he has curated and lectured at a multitude of locations including the National Museum of Modern Art in Kyoto, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Columbia University, and Taipei Cultural Center in New York. He also lends his skills to various boards including the Asamo Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum, City of Asylum Pittsburgh, and Visual Aids. Eric Shiner holds a Bachelor of Philosophy degree from University of Pittsburgh Honors College, a Master of Arts degree from Osaka University in Japan, and a Master of Arts degree from Yale University. So recently, he's taken on the role of Executive Director at Pioneer Works, the dynamic nonprofit in Red Hook, Brooklyn. So the following conversation is between myself and Eric Shiner. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. So I wanted to ask you about um, some Warhol stuff because that's part of your history, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about some of the other things you've been doing in projects and curating Um, but I wanted to know how did you get involved in the Warhol uh, world to begin with
1: you know in so many ways it was happenstance because in college I went to the University of Pittsburgh and I was a double major in Japanese art history and Japanese language and literature and ended up doing my junior year abroad in Japan. And I was very specifically focused on 16th century Japanese castle architecture and screen painting, Mm -hmm. which is very specific to say the least. And I also in my senior year was volunteering as an intern at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, working on the Japanese woodblock print collection there. And of course, as I was getting closer to graduation, I was really wondering what I was going to do. And I thought about going straight into PhD to continue my studies in medieval Japanese art history. And I also um, strangely was being recruited by McKinsey and Company, the consulting firm, because I spoke Japanese and they were interested in having me work in the Tokyo office and i really didn't quite want to do that and sell my soul to the corporate devil if you will as a you know idealistic 21 year old and very randomly one day the volunteer coordinator at the carnegie called me and said eric um the andy warhol museum is opening in a few weeks and we are looking for a curatorial intern the first ever at the museum and I think you'd be really good for this. And I said, wow, Um, I had just come out of the closet. So the idea of this big gay spaceship landing in the midst of Pittsburgh was very, very (laughs) exciting. And I was very forthright and I said, well, you know I don't really know that much about Andy Warhol. And she said, you're smart, you'll learn. Why don't you do it? And I said, okay, and how much does it pay? And she said, oh, well, um, nothing, but it's going to be a really great opportunity. And this of course, in the old days in 1994, when people didn't pay their interns, I'm very glad that things have changed on that front. But I decided to do it and I dove in, I worked at a restaurant at night in Pittsburgh to pay the bills and make sure I could eat and survive. And it was the best year of my life, just becoming completely absorbed in all things Warhol.
0: And then there was just a moment where suddenly you
1: realized you could get the main job as the director. Um, that really wasn't <laughs> on my radar at right. the age of 21. And it is incredible how years later, I went back to the museum as the chief curator and then became director after that. It was really full circle in a wonderful way.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that you, you know a lot about warhol i've watched some of the talks that you've you've given where you start with the scrapbook of warhol's Mm -hmm. famous um celebrity scrapbook when he was a kid like the shirley temple fascination that he had and all all that kind of stuff so you really do know a lot about it uh, chronologically and historically have noticed
1: yeah i dove in immediately and read literally everything i could get my hands on and also doing hands-on research for an entire year in the archives, really allowed me to connect with Warhol not only academically, but also to get a full, you know, 360-degree view of him in his world. And I also do think that it helped that I'm also, you know, a gay kid from Western Pennsylvania, and could extrapolate some of the experiences that he had growing up with those, um, obviously, decades later, but not that different in a lot of ways Mm. so was there like a moment where
0: suddenly you were you had access to all of these archives these hundred what was it something like 600 boxes of
1: 610 yeah
0: right and you had access to these boxes of 610 items and were you kind of a were you going through them or or you, I guess it's already all categorized and archived in a certain
1: well, way. Well, it wasn't certainly at the time. And in those early days, we were really opening boxes that hadn't been opened since Andy died. I remember we were working on a big fashion exhibition called the Warhol Look. And one of my tasks was to open boxes that literally came directly from Andy's home and hadn't been opened um, up until that point. And I mean, that one of those boxes literally made me stop dead in my tracks and just get goosebumps Mm. because as I opened it it was just one outfit it was a black leather jacket black jeans boots um a wig and at the bottom of the box was a hospital band um wrist bracelet and it was the bracelet that he wore when he went into the hospital checked in and sadly died in the hospital so I pretty Much quickly surmised that it was the outfit that he wore in to the hospital and that it had come back um, to the house um, Mm. with him not in it. So that all of a sudden made it a very real connection that Mm -hmm. this wonderful person died and Mm -hmm. these were some of the last things to touch his corpus. Mm. But, you know, over and above that, I also was working on um, back then when you had to build your own database. I built a database called the Andy Warhol Chronology. And I was literally tracking him every day through the Warhol diaries and any other things we could find that put him in a specific situation on a given day. um, So that we were really trying to piece together his life um, and where he was, who he was with, so that future scholars could add to that and um, you know that became a very foundational tool at the museum years later.
0: Mm-hmm. So I personally would be taken aback by the wigs and leather jackets and that kind of stuff. So I completely understand. I I've heard a lot about that that archive. So then um, he had a desire to be a dancer at one point in his life. Mm-hmm. He in his in his teen years, I guess.
1: Well. You know, in the early years, Andy was so fixated on Hollywood, as you noted, and Mm. would go to the movies as often as humanly possible, started to send away for the photographs. And also his mother bought him a Kodak Brownie camera, and he actually was, you know, processing the film in the basement. He had a little dark room set up. So I think in those early days, he would have, you know, definitely been thinking more about cinema or photography Mm. as a long term career but as he started to get older he just fell in love with dance he was the only male member of the dance club at Carnegie Tech where he went Mm. to college but sadly for everyone Andy had two left feet and wasn't um really that um skilled on the dance floor but I also think you know we look at his painting dance diagram um that series and I think he's making note of that that he couldn't technically dance but he could certainly depict what a technically skilled dance would look like
0: right right and so the warhol involvement for you was i guess that was after you went to japan um you went to japan before all of that oh
1: yeah in college i you know spent my junior year abroad there Mm -hmm. as an exchange student and um had a homestay and um was just completely absorbed in all things japan Right, and then eventually
0: you were interning at the Museum of Modern Art in Tokyo, is that?
1: The Museum of Modern Art in Kyoto. Oh, in Kyoto.
0: Okay, yeah. I almost had it right. Um, no. So then uh, by the time you got to the Warhol Museum, you were already grounded in the history of, uh, now Japanese
1: contemporary art or also Japanese historical art? Well, it's very interesting because um, While I was a senior in college at the Carnegie Museum, which is obviously foundational in everything that, you know, has happened to me, did a show with Yasumasa Morimura, the Japanese artist who is known for role-playing, costume, masquerade, becoming other characters, and... I you know, went to see the show. I fell completely in love with the work. And because of that, it was really a catalyzing agent. I did start to look at what was happening in Japanese contemporary art. And later that year, Alexandra Monroe did her really wonderful and important show, Scream Against the Sky, at the mm-hmm. Guggenheim in Soho. So I went up to New York to see that show. Um, one of my dear professors in college, Tom Reimer, introduced me to Alexandra. And she has been a wonderful mentor ever since those days. But as soon as I saw the broad swath of contemporary art in the post-war period in that show, I was just so intrigued and it was perfect timing because I was already working at the Warhol Museum Mm
0: -hmm. and I
1: realized I could marry my two interests, Mm. the love of things, contemporary, queer, Warhol, pop, with my love of Japan and so many Japanese artists were influenced by Andy in one way or another, especially Morimura who views him literally as his his father of sorts um, in the great pantheon of art history. So it all just sort of blended together. And I ended up going back to Japan to graduate school at Osaka University. And I worked specifically on Morimura, his work, and on the concept of what is called henshin in Japanese, Mm -hmm. which is bodily transformation, and how one can change the corpus, whether through costume, masquerade, disguise, um, in painting, obviously shifting things, um, which has a centuries old tradition in Japanese art history.
0: Right. That uh photographer you mentioned is almost like a Japanese male Cindy Sherman or something taking on. Yeah,
1: and the two of them are, you know, very often compared and, you know, are contemporaries and in the same age range and we're each doing their own thing in their own time. And um there are definitely many similarities, but also many, many differences as well. Yeah, of course.
0: And uh I remember when you um came to New York from uh, Pittsburgh. And I think you were, was that when you were working with Sotheby's? Is that, is that when you arrived in New York?
1: No, I um, moved to New York. So after living in Japan for a few years in graduate school and then being a curator for the first Yokohama Triennale in 2001, I moved back to the States in the late summer of 2002 and started my PhD at Yale in New Haven. And I did that for two years and everything was going smoothly. And then randomly in 2004, Asian contemporary art exploded. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to learn about Murakami and Nara and Kusama and Saiguo Chung and Ai Weiwei and Shu Bing and you name it. There was just this huge fixation on and fascination with Asian contemporary art. Luckily for me, I'd also been studying Chinese for a few years at that, you know, by that time and had been paying a lot of attention as to what was going on in contemporary Chinese art as well. And all of a sudden people started reaching out, asking me if I would, you know, write an essay here or give a lecture there. And the auction houses all of a sudden asked if I would, you know, help write the essays for the catalogs and... I kind of realized that if I didn't jump on that bandwagon at that precise moment in time that the ch- ship would sail. Right. So I made the you know tough decision and decided to leave the PhD program, got a master's degree and moved to New York in 2004 and just hit the ground running. And all of a sudden was curating, writing, teaching um, about Asian contemporary art and did that for four solid years in the city before I moved back home to Pittsburgh to become the Milton Fine Curator at the Warhol
0: Museum. Wow, I did not know that. And then, uh, but then you came back to New York again. After. Again, the, exactly. How many years did you say you were the director of the Warhol Museum?
1: I was director for six years and curator uh-huh. for two years before that. So I was there for eight years total. Wow,
0: and then something, you just wanted to come back to New York at a certain point.
1: Well. I think you know, it was a combination of things. We had achieved really everything we set out to do at the Warhol Museum, my team and I, and that was to get us on firm financial footing, get the message out, increase attendance, um, change the entire experience. And we were really successful in doing all of those things. And I felt after eight years, it was my time to pass the baton on to someone else. And it was also a great time to come back to the city which luckily I was able to travel to New York often but I missed it in a lot of ways as well and Mm -hmm. um you know Sotheby's had been talking to me for a while and I just thought you know what there's one thing that I really have never done before and that is sell art so Mm -hmm. let's try it for a while and Mm -hmm. I decided to take the plunge and you did that for how long um, almost three years at some of these. Wow, wow. Yeah.
0: That, that went fast. And then after <laughs> that was a stint at White Cube?
1: That's right. So I did that for a year when the gallery was exploring the idea of opening a gallery in New York City. Mm. And, um, you know, after a combined four years in the commercial art world, I really missed the nonprofit side. Right. And, you know, again, that idealist in me has never gone away and i've always wanted to try to do whatever i can to use art as a vehicle and as a platform for change and Mm -hmm. social justice and all of the many things that you know i believe in and Mm -hmm. that just wasn't working as much or as much as i hoped it would have in the commercial world Mm -hmm. and when the opportunity to be the first executive director of pioneer works presented itself i just said it's time i mm-hmm. need to go back
0: now the exhibition that we recently published at whitehot magazine that you curated it was called hook is
1: that yes it? hook so, arts yeah
0: and um that was uh, interviews on for and about the queer body yes and is that still on i
1: it ended last weekend oh, okay. it was just up for 2 weeks and hook is a new um digital platform that is hoping to make the selling of art much more accessible to much broader audiences, um, much younger audiences. And they were very kind to ask me if I would consider curating an exhibition about queer art. And I thought this can be really, really fun. And instead of curating the artwork, I decided to curate people this time Mm. and I paired eight groups of artists, 16 artists in total um, together, making sure that they had never met before. That was the rule. And also thinking who would have really interesting conversations with one another across ages, across genders, across geographies, mm-hmm. across you know media. And um, we recorded each one of the dialogues between the artists, who then chose with each other the works to include and I don't know if you got to watch any of the videos of the dialogues, but it was magical just to I, see. I didn't have strangers. a chance to watch
0: the dialogue, but I'd been in touch with some of the
1: artists. I think you had some people from Chicago, or yeah, a few. Mm-hmm. Like so, Brendan four. Fernandez and Sarp was is also out in Chicago, um, but it was great just to get a group together who didn't know each other and. It's phenomenal, like a real community Mm. has formed, like people are staying in touch with each other. And I hope that that um, is a catalyzing agent for a lot of fun collaborations to come. What do you have coming up at Pioneer Works? Oh, We are so excited to finally be reopening this weekend. We have two small exhibitions opening to the public, including um, a show called The Bomb, which is a collaborative effort with um, three artists, filmmakers, writers coming together to do a really cool immersive installation that is both heady and terrifying. And it's about the nuclear attack of Japan um, Mm. at the end of World War II. We of course hoped that it would have been installed last year to commemorate um, the 75th anniversary, but um, we're a year short, but um, it's phenomenal. And we're also doing Patty Chang's really great video installation called Milk Debt in which Patty interviews um, mothers as they are pumping breast milk in a variety of scenarios, talking about their biggest fears. And it is just so incredibly impactful. And some draw you to tears, others make you laugh, Um, but it's really just about fear and boy, have we ever been dealing with that for the oh, past yeah. several years absolutely and our big show in the main space opens on april 2nd and it is called brand new heavies mm-hmm. and Micheline thomas and her amazing wife raquel chevremont are curating the show and it features three mid-career african american women sculptors who are oh, all fantastic doing installations mm-hmm. including abigail deville with what is just going to blow people's minds I don't want to give it away okay um she is doing her probably Abigail likes to work in large scale regardless and I hope many people saw her installation in Madison Square Park last year um based on the Statue of Liberty and the torch um this one also has um a familiar um national emblem at its center Mm -hmm. um but is about 25 feet tall and it will be suspended from our wonderful rafters at Mm. Pioneer Works. Um, Xavier Simmons is doing a huge installation um, with a video component and um, a younger artist from the UK, Rosa, um, is doing this really, really great video installation and um, it is about empowerment, it's about voice and I cannot wait to welcome people back to pioneer works to see all three of these shows that'll be great yeah so everybody run down to pioneer works and please do (laughs) and i want to remind everybody that we are free and open to the public and um, that is one of our most important things that we do to make sure that art is accessible to all so spread the word and please do come
0: great okay well i don't want to take up your entire day but i was honored that you joined me and i was happy to see you
1: Well, thank you so much. And it's great to see you. And when you're back, let me know and let's get together and come over. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, have a good evening, Eric. Great to see you. Thank you
0: for having me. Take care, my friend. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. Visit us online at whitehotmagazine.com. See you around the art world.